This is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell, as we learned at the beginning of the week from Rasha Al-Akidi and her first-hand account of living in Iraq during what was being called the run-up to the Iraq War, as if it was necessary and unavoidable, when neither was true. War sucks, and this is hell. The United States at war is at war, and likely in a lot more places than you realize. It's not your fault. It's not because you are not consuming enough news or that you are simply not paying attention. The reason you don't know about many of the military actions the U.S. has been in since 9-11 and after is because many of those armed altercations between U.S. troops and others around the world have been kept secret from you, and not just from you. Those secret wars have been kept secret from members of the press, who would otherwise hopefully be covering the many wars the U.S. has fought throughout the 21st century. Those secret wars have also been kept secret from members of Congress, as well as from successive presidents of the United States, who have been kept in the dark as to where U.S. troops have fought and are currently fighting. So, who does know where U.S. military service men and women are fighting and have fought over the past nearly quarter of a century? Well, that would be the Pentagon and the CIA. They got that authority from the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, a joint resolution of the United States Congress. The AUMF was rushed through Congress and the Senate during the week immediately following 9-11. It became law on September 18, 2001, authorizing the use of the United States Armed Forces against those responsible for the 9-11 attacks. Only one member of the House and no members of the Senate voted against the AUMF. Democratic Congresswoman from Texas, Barbara Lee, was the one who voted against it, and she was vilified for doing so, which was attacked for being un-American, unpatriotic, and definitely was not supporting the troops. In opposition three days after 9-11, Representative Lee said in her statement on the floor of Congress authorizing use of force, quote, our country is in a state of mourning. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment. Let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. As a member of the clergy so eloquently said during a ceremony for those who died on 9-11, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. And that's the problem with the AUMF. Today, it's, been, it's being used to send people to war who were not born yet on 9-11 to fight insurgent groups that did not exist on 9-11. So there's no way they could be responsible in any way for the attacks of 9-11. If you want to know why we have and are engaging in a forever war, it's because the Bush administration rammed a resolution through the legislature authorizing an endless campaign of war against anyone the U.S. wants to attack or supporting other nations' militaries who are quote-unquote associated with the war against terrorism. In a few minutes, we'll learn why the forever war has been raging well uh, for many alive today forever. When we speak with Catherine Jan Ebright, who serves as counsel with the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program, where she focuses on war powers and the constitutional separation of powers, Catherine authored the study Secret War, how the U.S. uses partnerships and proxy forces to wage war under the radar. Catherine previously served as a fellow at the Public International Law and Policy Group, 
She then served as a law clerk to the Honorable John M. Walker Jr. of the Court of Appeals for the Second Court, the Second Circuit, and to the Honorable J. Paul Etkin of the District Court of the Southern District of New York. You can follow Catherine on Twitter at ebrightyon, that's Y-O-N. Find out more about the Brennan Center at brennancenter.org. And follow them on Twitter at Brennan Center. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how have you been? I've been great. Uh, just watched the Bulls win an unexpected play-in game. Yep, that was ridiculous. Night. Did you catch that? I was watching it during office hours downstairs. Yeah, it was insane. It was a wrestling match. It was. They, the, the referees let them do whatever they wanted to do all night long. It was just like the 90s. It was just like the 90s, that horrible brand of basketball back in the 1990s. Shadowing Will today is Dan Kugler. Uh, Dan, you sat in earlier this week. Are you starting to get a hang of what it takes to produce a show and run the board? Yes. Really? Yes. That's a, that's a, a very affirmative answer. Uh, Will is uh, sleeping right now. So. Is he? Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. That's when he gets paid time and a half. Yeah. So, Will or Dan, uh, can one of you please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, this week's question from hell is, who would you like to see indicted and why? Who would you like to see indicted and why? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins, as always, their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to This Is Hell Radio at gmail.com during the show. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of today's show. If you are a regular regular listener, you heard the news that producer Lindsey Gorey left the show a couple weeks ago, and if you heard yesterday's show, you learned that Dan Hill is also moving on, which means we are currently interviewing potential new producers here on This Is Hell, which leads me to ask, how would you, dear listener, like to be a producer on the show? If you can make it to our studio at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood and be here from 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. any one or more days, Monday through Wednesday, each week, and believe in what we do on the show, you too can be part of our crew. Specifically, we are currently looking for a producer who can cover Tuesdays every week, and with Dan leaving, uh, we are actually seeking a regular Wednesday producer as well. However, our schedule is very flexible. Uh, the duties of a producer include confirming guests in the days leading up to the show and helping them with logistics to put them on air. You will also do a guest sound check 15 minutes before airtime, run the board during the live stream and recording. Following the show, producers edit whatever is necessary, post the show on all our social media platforms, back up the show on an external hard drive, and finally prepare the show for distribution to one of our five media outlets. The whole process should take about three and a half hours. We also reward producers for their services, which we will discuss if you are interested in the position. You will also get a number of perks, including access to a professional studio for you to engage in your own projects, which we will happily promote. Do you already do a podcast but want to do it somewhere other than your acoustically challenged basement 
bedroom or dining table, then join us here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in joining This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com, and tell us a little bit about yourself and why you like the show so much and uh, that you actually want to contribute to the show and want to work here on This Is Hell. Coming up, why the U.S. is currently engaged in what looks like an endless forever war. Will will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you everything that's happening uh, on next week's show, at least that we have, you know, scheduled so far, confirmed so far. And uh, we'll be sharing all of that with you, announcing this week's winner uh, for the question from hell following our guest. You are here, and this is hell. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell. And the law as it now stands allows for the United States waging a forever war that is not only endless, but it's secret. But how can the public oppose a war or support it, for that matter, if that war is a secret? Are we not seeing anti-war protests because we don't know where the U.S. is currently engaging in war? Here to help us have a better understanding of the ongoing forever war and its secrecy, Catherine Jan Ebright serves as counsel with the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program, where she focuses on war powers and the constitutional separation of powers. Catherine authored the study, again titled Secret War, How the U.S. Uses Partnerships and Proxy Forces to Wage War Under the Radar. Welcome to This Is Hell, Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so um, much. I'm sorry. Oh, it's it's great to be speaking with you and your audience and I'm I'm, you know, very happy that you were interested in the report and the subject generally. Yeah, and the the report, I just want to make sure everybody understands, it came out on November 3rd. What was the reaction to your report? I didn't hear about this report until just recently doing uh, some research for an uh, uh conversation I was having with Murtaza Hussein of The Intercept about uh, looking back at the uh, Iraq war 20 years on. Mm -hmm. And that's how I found out about your study. How did uh, what was the reaction to your report? Did it get a lot of uh, press coverage? Uh, So Nick Terse uh, wrote a piece, a journalist wrote a piece uh, for The Intercept uh, to coincide with the publication of the report. There have been a handful of media outlets in, in some of the subjects that are covered in the report. Um, we'll we'll get to the 127 Echo Authority um, and the concept of surrogate forces, I'm sure, in, in this interview. Um, but the New York Times and Charlie Savage, a journalist with the Times, recently filed a FOIA litigation um, to try to get some of the documents uh, that are relevant to the 127 Echo Authority and, and surrogate forces. Um, so there, there certainly is interest in this subject, but um, unless you're really an intrepid journalist uh, who's plugging away at these issues for a long time, like Nick Terses um, and, and like Wesley Morgan, who's written uh, some groundbreaking pieces on surrogate forces for uh, Politico and for The Washington Post, unless you're really in that position, um, it's hard to do this research. We've had Nick Terse on the show in the past. He does some fantastic work. Uh, but do you do we know to what extent this process of keeping wars secret is unique for governments around the world to not only keep war secret from the public, but from the branch of government that is supposed to declare war. Do we know if this is unique 
or do other uh, nations engage in secret wars as well? Uh, so in terms of comparative research, that, that was not the focus of uh, the secret war report. That's not something that I'm very well steeped in. Um, however, I have spoken to um, a researcher who is looking at security assistance and quote unquote secret war in the comparative context, Sam Winter-Levy, um, who's currently uh, doing graduate studies at Princeton. Um, and his sense is that in contexts like the United Kingdom, uh, there actually is even less transparency than there is in the United States. Um, and so, you know, just some of the actors who you maybe would expect um, given the history, uh, past colonial involvements, um, have operations that are not disclosed to their publics, that are not disclosed to uh, even their lawmakers with uh, the same kind of fragmented information that we in the United States get. So what, if anything, what do these secret wars have in common? And if they're not the same, what makes them different? Are they all about different missions or do they all seem to be about generally the same mission? Uh, well, at least in the American context, uh, the proliferation of quote-unquote secret war um, or the use of kinetic force by within through foreign partners, uh, but also in some instances by uh, U.S. forces themselves, um, that's really taken off um, at least on the Pentagon side um, since 9-11, and it's been part of our ongoing uh, war on terror. Um, and you, you gave this bit about the 2001 AUMF at the top of the program. Um, and you mentioned how it had sort of metastasized in geography and, and in terms of adversaries um, to include countries, uh, and, and adversaries that had no involvement, uh, none at all with 9-11. Um, and I think the relevant thing there is to say that George W. Bush, when he asked Congress for the authorization to use military force to respond to 9-11, he imagined a war on terror as such. So not a war against those responsible for 9-11, but a war to stamp out terrorism. Um, and so he gave this speech uh, that was like, we're going to go after all of these people wherever they may be. Um, and Congress actually, you know, much as, as the AUMF was sped through the legislative process, Congress said, no, we want to put some limiting language in this. We, we can't be fighting terror everywhere, whatever that means. Um, we're going to pursue those who are responsible for 9-11. Um, and ensure that 9-11 doesn't happen again. Um, and so that language is literally in the AUMF. Um, it says that that authorization can be used to, to pursue those who conducted 9-11 or those who harbored them. And so that's Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Um, and of course, now we're using the AUMF to fight any number of groups from Al-Shabaab to Islamic State affiliates in, in Africa, um, and neither Al-Shabaab nor the Islamic State, let alone its various affiliates, um, even existed on 2001. Um, so, so really, the the counterterrorism prerogative has been very, very broad, and and has driven a lot of U.S. engagement 
around the globe. And that's been one of the through lines for our kinetic activity across Africa and Asia. And you point out that after U.S. forces took casualties in Niger in 2017, for example, lawmakers were taken a, taken aback by the very presence of U.S. forces in the country. So this was in October of 2017 in the village of Tango Tango, less than nine months into the Trump administration during an ambush militants from the Islamic State of the Greater Sahara, uh, four Nigerians, four U.S. soldiers and 21 members of the ISGS were also reportedly killed. Uh, so is is secret war? and the ongoing secret forever war. Is this a bipartisan project? Does the secret, if you want to call it even the secret forever war, does it get partisan support or does it get bipartisan support? It's absolutely a bipartisan endeavor. Um, and, and that is in, in several ways. Um, first, the war on terror has been prosecuted and expanded uh, by both Republican and Democratic presidents. Um, the U.S. military footprint, U.S. kinetic engagement has been expanded across administrations of, of both Republican and, and Democratic presidents. Um, but also you've seen democratically controlled Congresses and Republican controlled Congresses uh, take no steps to really rein in those excesses or to the extent that you know, steps are taken, they're, they're really insufficient, um, at least to this point. And, and I would hope uh, that one of the issues um, and why we have this bipartisan consensus in Congress to uh, not really end these overreadings of the 2001 AUMF and these um, over-interpretations and over-implementations of the president's constitutional authority to use force, um, is that so much of this happens under the radar. And so if, if there's no public disclosure, if there's no public accountability, there's no debate. Um, and all the more so if, if that information isn't hitting the lawmakers themselves, right? And so you need the lawmakers first and foremost to know, but it's also so helpful for the public to know so that, you know, you can call your congressman and say, uh, I don't think that we should be doing killer capture missions against the Islamic State in the greater Sahara in Niger. Um, but until we have more information from the Pentagon, um, from from the White House about when, where and against whom we're using force, you know, you can't even place that call to your congressman and maybe your congressman doesn't even know. So the 2001 AUMF was not, you write, was not limited to Afghanistan. Indeed, it had no geographic or temporal limitation. As Bush said on September 20th, 2001, two days after signing the 2001 AUMF into law, there are thousands of terrorists in more than 60 countries. Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. And you add that contrary to the stated purpose of the 2001 AUMF, which is preventing those responsible for 9-11 from perpetrating future acts of terrorism against the United States, Bush's purpose was to ensure that every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. Did the Bush administration, without opposition from Congress, declare war against 60 countries shortly after the attacks of 9-11? Did the public recognize what Bush was doing? And was the majority of the public fine with that? I, I do want to make a distinction between declaring war against a country and declaring war against 
various non-state actors. Um, so we are, and, and I think this has been a, uh, a an important thing for me to uh, make really, really clear about the report. Oftentimes when we are engaging with non-state actors, terrorist groups um, in Africa and Asia, we are doing that with the explicit consent of the government uh, of the host country. Um, and so we will say, can we pursue this terrorist group in, in your borders? And, and they'll say, okay. Um, there are some circumstances in which the US government operates under a theory uh, that the host country is quote unquote, unable or unwilling uh, to engage with those uh, terrorist organizations within its borders. And then uh, because we have this theory that uh, the host country is unable or unwilling, then we can do those lethal strikes um, or, or we can do a raid um, and take out whatever high value target the Pentagon has identified within that foreign country that has not given its consent. Um, and so in, in those contexts, um, you know, the legal question and, and the appropriate rhetoric is a little bit murkier, like you could say at war with, um, but for the most part, you know, the research that I've done is, is on circumstances where we are at war in uh, a variety of countries. Um, and did the public, did Congress give consent for us to be at war in, you know, 20 something countries? Absolutely not. Um, did, did Congress give consent for us to be at war with uh, not only Al Qaeda and the Taliban, uh, but also uh, this whole range of Al Qaeda affiliates um, who are in Tunisia, who are in Yemen? Um, no. Like those groups are not responsible for 9 11. And the plain text of the 2001 AUMF uh, says, and, and the purpose of the AUMF um, was to pursue those responsible for 9-11, prevent 9-11 2.0 from happening. Um, and that was a very intentional choice made by lawmakers at the time. Um, and, and there's this idea um, that, and, and I heard it so many times when I was speaking uh, with Department of Defense officials, former current Department of State officials, former uh, that, you know, we've been able to do all of this stuff, um, operate against all of these various adversaries across the globe. Um, and Congress has allowed us to do it because it hasn't stopped us from doing it. Uh, Congress is asleep at the wheel. And so uh, we're allowed to to do X, Y, and Z under the auspices of the 2001 AOMF. And it's just every time I hear that, a little bit grating because Congress's inaction does not change the text of the law that was enacted. Um, and moreover, right, you can say Congress is asleep at the wheel, um, but who's driving the car then? Um, the person who's putting all of these U.S. forces across the globe um, and engaging in all of this kinetic activity, uh, whether directly or by, with, and through foreign partners, um, that's who's driving the car. Um, and, and so, you know, if, if we're hitting pedestrians or we're hitting other cars, um, it's, it's really hard then to fault Congress as the primary 
uh, actor. So it would be unfair for me to say then, if not that just that they're asleep at the wheel, but they are acting as a rubber stamp for the CIA, for the Pentagon, whoever wants to launch these secret wars overseas. Is Do you think that by being so passive, by not doing anything, do you think that they are acting either intentionally or unintentionally? Do you think they're acting just as a rubber stamp for whatever the military wants to do around the world? I think some members of Congress uh, historically and, and perhaps contemporarily have been. Uh, but this gets us back to the question of, do members of Congress even know how these authorities are being used? Um, and so if you have the AUMF being used in Niger for killer capture missions, and you have the, the chairman or ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, which theoretically is getting readouts from DOD on, on these kinds of operations, uh, you, have, you have John McCain or, or you have Lindsey Graham saying, uh, I didn't know that these activities were happening. Um, I don't think that the Department of Defense has been transparent with us, has complied with its disclosure obligations to us um, because we we had no idea that there were killer captures in that country. Um, you know, you can't be a rubber stamp on something that you don't know is happening. So you also mentioned that uh, on the day before he signed the 2001 AUMF into law, President Bush made a broad finding under the Covert Action Statute to grant the CIA, quote, exceptional authorities to kill or capture al-Qaeda targets around the world. The finding granted the CIA powers identical to those wielded by the Department of Defense under the 2001 AUMF, including the direct use of lethal force. By 2011, the CIA controlled a 3,000-man covert army in Afghanistan, had used new drone technologies to conduct covert airstrikes in Yemen and Pakistan, and had killed upwards of 2,000 militants and civilians. 20% of CIA analysts were dedicated to identifying and locating targets for future drone strikes. Ostensibly a civilian agency, the CIA had the authority and tools to act as a military force. So did this process then take the war on terror out of the hands of everyone but the CIA and Pentagon. Uh, so with respect to the finding under the covert action statute and, and the CIA itself, um, you know, that's not, not an area where I have deep expertise, right? I, I only, you know, was really working off of the public record there, which of course is sparse um, because research into CIA activity is perhaps understandably uh, much more challenging uh, than research into uh, how the Department of Defense is interpreting its various authorities. At least with the Department of Defense, you know who the generals are. Uh, you can figure out what their contact information is. You can you can send uh, cold calls or or cold emails um, to various people who are up and down the the chain of command. Um, with respect to the CIA, um, you know the intelligence committees in Congress. Uh, think that they have a pretty good read on what that agency is doing. Uh, does the rest of the country? No. Does even the rest of Congress? Also no. Um, and, and so it's not something where I feel particularly well equipped to, to speak to the issues other than that there is, you know, by design, no transparency. Um, and that, of course, the lack of transparency means that you have tremendous risk for abuse. 
um, and tremendous potential for, uh, you know, the expansion of of conflict, uh, combat, drone strikes. Um, one of the things that I think is uh, important to think about in the context of the CIA is why do they have all of this uh, opacity? How how are they frustrating our ability to know where the U.S. military or, or where the United States is, is using force through the agency, of course, not through Pentagon, since we're talking about the CIA. Um, and that's because they have over the course of decades, um, right, like starting in the Cold War, very shortly after the CIA was established as an agency, they've been working um, at, at what's come to be known as quote unquote light footprint technology or light footprint warfare. Um, and so how can you uh, wage war, engage in the use of force without a very sizable U.S. presence? Um, and without that sizable U.S. presence, there's no visibility uh, for the press. Uh, you can uh, sort of toggle uh, how much visibility you want for members of Congress. Um, and so if you're running a proxy force, let's say if you're the CIA in Laos, um, you're running a proxy force there that's 10,000 people. Um, if you only need a handful of CIA operatives and contractors, um, you can make it look like, well, that's just something that's happening in Laos. Like the U.S. isn't meaningfully involved or or it's not going to hit American papers um, until, and this was the fact with respect to the, the secret war in Laos that the CIA conducted um, as a sort of tag on to the Vietnam War. Um, that news about that proxy war uh, hit the press about 10 years after the start of the, the conflict. Um, and, and really the focus of my research, again, it hasn't been uh, CIA authorities, how the CIA is using those authorities, it's been the Department of Defense. And so one of the uh, dynamics or, or key authorities that I, I looked at in the report um, was this authority now called 127 Echo 10 uh, from, from Title 10 of the U.S. Code, Section 127E. Um, and 127 Echo is basically the Department of Defense's way to uh, mirror, have the same kind of authority to create those foreign proxy forces or surrogate forces um, that the CIA has, has used uh, over the course of decades since the Cold War. Um, so... Sorry, longer answer uh, that sort of shifted focus, but no, not at all. Because the historical context is really important. You write how so? How did we get here? Two sources of the government's ability to wage war and secret wars are already the subject of much discussion. The first is, as we've been discussing, the 2001 authorization for use of military force, which was enacted in the wake of September 11 attacks. Notwithstanding the limitations in its text, the uh, 2001 AUMF has been stretched by four successive administrations to cover a broad assortment of terrorist groups, the full list of which the executive branch long withheld from Congress and still withholds from the public. Why would the government not want, I, I, I'm sorry if this is, you know, asking for you to figure out what their motivations are, but why would the U.S. government not want the public to know which terror groups the U.S. sees as a risk to the safety and security of the public? Why not let us know who the government has determined is an enemy. 
No, I think that's a great question. I ask that question all the time. Um, and I, you know, urge members of Congress to ask that same question. And, uh, you know, members of Congress have asked that question. And so this is yet again, a, an instance of saying you can't treat the government as a monolith. Um, it's really this executive branch secrecy uh, that we've seen for the past two decades on, on the global reach of the war on terror, um, all consuming reach of the, the war on terror. Um, and so while we've gotten some transparency during the Obama administration, uh, quite minimal transparency, um, at the very, very tail end of it, his administration released a list of six different groups um, that we, you know, were, were using force against directly under the 2001 AUMF. Um, but, you know, after, after, I guess let's, so there was this incident that happened in 2013 in a congressional hearing when it became clear uh, that the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, um, then Senator Levin, uh, didn't actually have the full list of adversaries that the executive branch, the Obama administration, believed could be pursued under the 2001 AOMF. Um, Senator Levin was like, you, you need to create that list if you don't have that list already compiled, and then you need to give it to Congress. Um, they gave it to Congress uh, in classified form so the public didn't have it. Um, the Obama administration, though, had, I, I think, some, some bad feeling that they were maybe stimming uh, democratic debate, congressional debate, too, um, on the, the bounds of the war on terror. And so in December 2016, right before the Obama administration ended, um, they produced and, and voluntarily released a 66-page document um, that explained various theories for the use of force, um, including the 2000, especially the 2001 AOMF, and gave a list, again, of those associated forces that they could pursue. Um, in their opinion. Um, Congress thought that that was very helpful. And uh, by memorandum, uh, the Obama administration had said, okay, we should keep producing this report with updates on an annual basis. Um, the Trump administration in its first year did not update the report. Um, and Congress was upset with that. Um, and so then it statutorily mandated the production of updates to the report um, that would, you know, you would hope continue giving information about who we were fighting. Um, but Congress in enacting this law said, if you need, you can stick information into a classified annex. Um, and so when the Trump administration produced its first report um, about its interpretation of the law and the policy regarding the use of force, including the 2001 AUMF, um, it stuck that list of associated forces, stuck the list of, of who we were fighting into the classified annex. And never again have we seen it um, as members of the public. Um, and, and why? Um, again, I, I don't really have a great answer there, other than that, if we don't know, we can't problematize it. If we don't know, we can't debate uh, whether or not certain groups should be included in that list. Um, we also can't have a great sense of the geographic contours um, of the war on terror. Um, and so I, I think if you were to ask most members of the American public, 
where was the war where is the war on terror right now that the war in afghanistan has more or less ended um i think people would say iraq syria maybe if they're informed they'll say syria um but it's just you know so so murky that people don't know the 20 other countries um where we've engaged in in various exchanges uses of kinetic force um under that that broad mandate of of stamping out international terrorism so do you think that there are secret wars that are going on right now that even you don't know about uh, do I think that there are locations where U.S. forces are themselves using or are using surrogate forces uh, to pursue terrorist groups? And and I don't know about that. Yes, absolutely. Um, so much of the research that I did for the report is historical in nature, like near history, um, but not contemporary, because I was speaking to a lot of former Department of Defense officials who could tell me about programs that had happened but had less visibility into what we were perhaps doing currently and you know current department of defense officials were much cagier um about you know what are the facts on the ground and you know that's that's completely fair um you know i'm not trying to get classified information out of anyone on the job um i really just wanted to understand how is the government looking at these authorities um and based on those legal interpretations, what are the risks that we're running and what kinds of guardrails should Congress impose to prevent those risks? So what would you say to someone who argues that we need to keep these wars secret as a matter of national security? And because that's often used as an excuse to not to not be transparent in any way. What would you say to someone who says these wars need to be secret because of national security? Yeah, so I, I mean, that first off presumes that these wars should be happening. Um, that's a little bit like I, as a policy matter, that's a little bit outside of my bellywick. Um, but certainly as a what has Congress authorized or not authorized, that's that's very much, you know, within the scope of my work. And, uh, you know, Congress has never authorized wars, as as we've discussed, wars with this vast array of different entities that bear no responsibility for 9-11 in all of these countries that Congress never imagined the 2001 AUMF would be used in. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a very strong legal answer for should we be at war in these various countries? Um, and, and that answer is no. Um, with respect to, uh, you know, we can't tell you about security working by, with, and through foreign partners, surrogate forces. Um, we can't tell you the countries in which we're running those kinds of programs. Um, there certainly is an argument that you don't want to, you know, talk about U.S. forces' specific locations in public fora. You don't want to talk about their specific modes of operation in public fora. Um, and I think that there's some merit there. Um, but do we need to know who are we at war with? Where are we at war? Uh, like, where where are we using force? Um, Yes, I think that those need to be matters of the public record because it enables this discussion about, uh, you know, the constitutional balance of powers where uh, the Congress is responsible for declaring war, for regulating the military, um, where the public is supposed to be and is 
the key stakeholder in those decisions, right? We live in a, a democracy, representative democracy. Um, and so ultimately, these are supposed to be decisions that, uh, you know, are bound up with public will um, and accountability. But we we don't have that. Um, and so if someone were to say, uh, we need to have some measure of, of opacity, like, sure, I, I think that that is probably true. Um, but you can't use that as a way to wiggle out of the, the fundamental question of, should we be, is there authorization for us to be at war in certain places um, in the way that we are conducting war in the big questions? Are we having uh, you know, the constitutionally democratically mandated uh, debates and disclosure that would facilitate those debates? Um, and, and I think the last thing that I'd say is even if you think that some information needs to be withheld from the public, um, there is precisely no explanation or rationale that you could give to me that would persuade me that that information must be withheld from Congress. Um, like there's there's no reason uh, that you would say uh, or could say um, that our democratically elected officials um, can't can't know um, where we're at war or how we're operating um, because ultimately they're the ones who who hold the the reins on what authorities the Department of Defense has. Um, they're the ones who enacted. Um, I, I've you know we've talked about the covert action statute. We've talked about uh, 127 Echo and surrogate forces, uh, the 2001 AOMF. If Congress doesn't know how those are being used um, or or overinterpreted. Right? How is it going to know what guardrails need to be imposed? And the public, I would say generally, believes that Congress has the sole power to declare war. And we'll get to that in just a moment. We're speaking with Catherine Jan Ebright. She authored the study, the Brennan Center study, Secret War, How the U.S. Uses Partnerships and Proxy Forces to Wage War Under the Radar. Uh, you write that um, a special limitation on the length of army appropriations, the Constitution's two-year clause, was understand to demand Congress's regular, was understood to demand Congress's regular and informed review of military affairs. The president's role, by contrast, was narrow. Per the Supreme Court, the power and duty of the president was to command the forces and direct the conduct of campaigns after Congress had already provided by law for carrying on war. Only in narrow circumstances, when defensive force was necessary to repel sudden attacks on U.S. soil, and persons was the Constitution understood to empower the president to act without congressional authorization. So are the secret wars defensive wars, thus existing within the limits of the Constitution and the law on war making? Can these be described as defensive wars accurately? Uh, so because Congress passed the 2001 AUMF, it also passed in 2002, uh, very cleverly named 2002 AUMF, um, which was the authorization for the Iraq War, um, which, you know, if you flash forward to the Trump administration and then to today, like the Iraq War authorization is still being used, or rather was being used in the Trump administration uh, for ongoing operations in Iraq and then also in Syria, um, which is not Iraq. Um, and it's been used to combat Iran-backed militias 
um, who are also, you know, not within the scope of the Iraq war. Um, but the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs, um, at least notionally, would have allowed the president to use all sorts of uh, force that is not defensive in nature. Um, and you could have, um, my, my report is, the focus of the report is something that I call, quote unquote, security cooperation enabled hostilities. Um, and so it is how U.S. forces work with foreign partners, foreign militaries, paramilitaries, even private individuals at times um, to conduct operations, including kinetic or combat operations. Um, and those uh, quote unquote secret wars um, are often happening. So again, they're, they're light footprint in the same way that like when the CIA in the Cold War was operating through proxies, that was light footprint, which reduced the visibility, which then you know frustrates congressional discourse, public discourse and, and accountability. Um, but the security cooperation activities um, some of them at least are happening under the auspices of the 2001 AOMF. Um, and, and so they don't necessarily have to be defensive in nature if you buy that interpretation of, of the law. Um, there are also security cooperation activities where the way that we end up using force, uh, for instance, in Somalia right now, um, is notionally under uh, a very broad reading of the president's inherent authority uh, to use defensive force. Um, and so we've really seen since the Cold War um, a very substantial growth in the executive branches, the president's claimed authority to use force even when the use of force has not been explicitly approved or authorized by Congress. Um, and so one of the things that we see today in Somalia is really striking uh, invocations of quote unquote collective self-defense. Um, and this is a contested theory um, really cut from whole cloth by executive branch lawyers uh, that says that we can defend designated partners, foreign partners. Um, and so let's say we, uh, train and equip a foreign military, as we have done, um, a foreign military in Somalia. Um, the Danab Brigade, we actually you know, helped stand that up as the special operations contingent within the Somali National Army. Um, and we spent a lot of money, we've trained them, um, and they go out into the field on offensive uh, missions against Al-Shabaab. So their, their goal is Al-Shabaab holds certain territory. Uh, we're going to go and take that territory back. We're going to do attacks affirmatively on Al-Shabaab encampments. Um, and of course, Al-Shabaab is going to fight back when they are attacked. Um, and I I guess I want to say too, that like I think there's nothing wrong with the Somali military trying to stamp out Al-Shabaab in its own, own borders. Like that makes complete and total sense. But what does not make sense um, is for the U.S. military to say, okay, well, our partners are out on an offensive operation. They're now taking fire. We need to defend them 
And that's constitutional self-defense, collective self-defense. We have every authority to do that without consulting Congress, right? Because what we've done in essence, what, what the Department of Defense has done in that situation um, is it has, you know, chosen a partner um, and then used that partner as a sort of springboard into a conflict with Al-Shabaab um, saying like, look, this is, this is all okay, even if, uh, you know, there had never been any democratic debate over, over fighting Al-Shabaab. It's okay because we're, we're just defending our partners. But again, your partners are saying we're out doing offensive operations. So you point out that undeterred, the Department of Defense asked President Biden to redeploy the military to Somalia, touting the uh, supposed effectiveness of its work with local forces. In addition to the Puntland um, uh, security force, the Department of Defense wanted to continue its in-person direction of the Danab Brigade, a force of 1,000 fighters that the United States had funded, recruited, trained, and partnered with since 2011. The Danab Brigade, for its part, had been accused of civilian harm and arbitrary arrests, some of which allegedly took place on missions directed and supervised by U.S. forces. And the 2017, U, in, in, in 2017, U.S. forces logged their first combat death in Somalia since the 1990s while conducting a raid alongside the Danab Brigade. President Biden approved the redeployment in mid-2022 using the code uh, 333. The Department of Defense sent U.S. forces to train the equipped the Dana Brigade. This is a part of the Somali National Army. Though 127E, or through 127E, the Department of Defense trained and equipped the Puntland uh, Security Force, put the Puntland Security Force and Dana Brigade on the United States payroll, and directed both forces to pursue U.S. military targets and objectives. So how associated are these forces then with local government, or are they more associated with U.S. policies than any Somali government agenda? Uh, so the Puntland Security Force, uh, which is the, I, I think in the report, the first of the two partners, um, Somali partners that, that I discussed, um, the Puntland Security Force had virtually no connection uh, with the Somali government. Um, and in fact, after we, so the Trump administration uh, called for a withdrawal of all U.S. forces from Somalia, which is then why the Biden administration had to redeploy, or I mean, didn't have to, um, but the Biden administration uh, is referred to as having, quote unquote, redeployed U.S. forces to Somalia. Um, and, and when the Trump administration withdrew all of those forces from Somalia, um, we stopped work with the Puntland Security Force. Um, and what the Puntland Security Force did, because it had, you know, virtually no ties to a local, uh, let alone federal government, um, is it abandoned the fight against al-Shabaab, it abandoned the fight against the Islamic State in Somalia, and it took up arms against the local government. Um, and so, yeah, they took commands from the United States, they received salaries from the United States. Um, and when we left without you know, figuring out what was going to happen after um, a decade plus of working with this, you know, paramilitary group that we had created. Um, very predictably, it caused problems. Um, it was wildly unsustainable. Um, and then with respect to the Janab Brigade, that's a little bit of a different story. Um, so from its inception, it was very explicitly 
a part of the Somali National Army. Um, and so while there is a segment of the Danab, um, that historically, I'm not sure if this is a program that's still ongoing, um, but there was a 127 ECHO program, again, the surrogate force program, um, that allowed us to uh, command command members of the Danab Brigade. Um, so, so to that extent, like they certainly uh, were taking orders from the United States. They were still, however, you know, ultimately uh, responding to or, or responsible to the Somali National Army. And so the, the various arrangements um, of how we're working with partner forces will depend from context to context. Um, and, and there are contexts in which, you know, we create these surrogate forces and we don't ask them to engage in combat. We ask them to gather intelligence for us. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of the things that makes doing research in this area hard, right? Is that you don't know where the programs are because the Department of Defense isn't telling you. Um, once you learn that a program exists, you don't know the exact nature of that program. Right? Is it kinetic? Are we doing combat by within through those foreign partners, uh, or or are we instead using them for uh, non kinetic, non combat activities? And and maybe those non combat activities don't trigger or implicate constitutional war powers in the same way. Um, but I do want to get at one last thing that you mentioned, which is three three three. So that is the triple three authority for training and equipping. Foreign Partners, also known as the Global Train and Equip Authority, it's at Section 333 of Title 10 of the U.S. Code. Um, and that authority isn't supposed to allow you to go out and do operations uh, or, or command foreign partners. Um, it's just supposed to be, you know, we're on a base, we're providing weapons to foreign partners, uh, we're training partners on how to use those weapons, and, you know, you can debate on the policy whether or not that makes sense, um, but at least from the war powers perspective, right? Like you would think if we're sitting on a base, um, there's not really a concern, right? Like how are we gonna end up using force? Um, but one of the things uh, that the Denob Brigade example in particular shows you um, is that when you are uh, helping or even standing up a foreign force under the triple three authority, even though it's supposed to be taking place at a base. Um, if the White House and, and Department of Defense decide that they can engage in collective self-defense on behalf of that partner, right? So again, this contested theory of constitutional power, contested theory of what exactly the president has the authority to defend without receiving authorization from Congress. Um, you can, in essence, provide air support um, to your foreign partners, or you can get into combat uh, so that you can protect those foreign partners. And so triple three without the appropriate safeguards, and those safeguards are not written into the law as yet, um, can be used as a springboard for combat if you're, you know, assisting uh, partners in a place where your partners are themselves fighting their own conflicts. Um, and so that's really how we get this whole mosaic of different conflicts um, through security cooperation um, is its overbroad readings of the 2001 AOMF, overbroad readings of the use of force authorities under the Constitution. Um, and until there are various safeguards added 
to our security cooperation authorities to prevent them from being used to implement those co uh, very controversial and, and problematic interpretations of the law, um, security cooperation will pose a risk um, of these undisclosed, arguably unauthorized hostilities. And well, of the uh, and the 333, which is also, as you're saying, the Global Train and Equip Authority, you mentioned that uh, you list the nations where these 333 programs are taking place, including Afghanistan, Albania, the Bahamas, Bahrain, Belize, Benin, Burkina Faso, Cabo Verde, Cameroon, Chad, Colombia. Thank you for putting these in alphabetical order, by the way. <laughs> Costa Rica, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Croatia, Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Gabon, Georgia, Ghana, Guatemala, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Honduras, Hungary, Indonesia, Jamaica, Jordan, Kazakhstan, Kenya, Kosovo, Lebanon, Liberia, Mauritania, uh, Mexico, Mongolia, Montenegro, Morocco, Niger, Nigeria, North Macedonia, Panama, Peru, Philippines, Romania, Senegal, Serbia, Somalia, South Africa, Tajikistan, Tanzania, Togo, Trinidad and Tobago, Tunisia, Uganda, Ukraine, and Uzbekistan. To what extent is there a visible U.S. military presence or influence in these countries? Are these countries and the people of those countries fully aware of that U.S. military presence? Is it out in the open? So for, for the Triple Three Authority... Uh, yes, those programs actually aren't even classified. I think the list that you just read off was a list from 2018, uh, supplemented with with uh, some notifications, again, unclassified, that, that the Department of Defense had given to Congress. Um, but, and also, you know, vast majority of, vast, vast, vast majority of those programs are not going to have any risk of combat. Right. Like if we're doing a train and equip in, in Jamaica, like I, I don't in the Bahamas, like I, I don't really think that we're we're, you know, thinking about triple three and war powers terms in those contexts. Um, so some some things in response to your questions, though, triple um, threes are all done with the consent of the host country. Um they are not, you know, in and of themselves necessarily going to lead to secret war. Um, the issue is when you have train and equips that are more or less co-located with where our foreign partners are fighting their own local adversaries. Um, and so we have seen instances where U.S. forces who were deployed to help train and advise uh, the Philippine military uh, ended up getting into combat with all sorts of different adversaries, some of which were, uh, you know, terrorist groups, other of which were separatist groups um, in the Philippines. Um, and so, yeah, like U.S. forces getting into firefights um, in unit self-defense. So, you know, they put their base in a risky position um, without congressional authorization to have put that base there where they were going to come under attack. Um, or they went out and they defended their partner forces against, uh, you know, whatever local adversaries their partner forces were fighting. Um, and so, again, you, you have that problematic implementation of collective self-defense in that context. Um, we've talked about the Somali context. Um, but, yeah, like in, in a lot of these countries, uh, particularly in Africa and the Middle East, um, there have been examples of U.S. forces coming into contact um, 
with foreign adversaries um, that are not Al-Qaeda or the Taliban as such. Um, and so there, again, you, you have that friction, you have that possibility that there is, uh, you know, an unauthorized war. So through secret wars, is the U.S. supporting authoritarian governments or those with horrible human rights records? When it comes to supporting associates, are there checks and balances when it comes to their human rights records? Um, so one of the things, you, you said that you had Nick Turris on the show. One of the things that Nick Turris has done a great job of doing is, is tracking uh, coups that have been launched by recipients of U.S. training. Um, and, and U.S. equipment, so these kinds of programs, um, and you know, there there certainly aren't aren't enough safeguards um, against us working with uh, individuals who are inclined to undermine the democracies um, or, or governments under which they live. Um, there are also, um, and I've mentioned one twenty seven Echo a number of times. Um, programs under this surrogate force authority. And, and that's a little bit different from most train and equip authorities. So most train and equip authorities are subject to something called the Leahy Law. Um, and the Leahy Law requires your partners before you can actually start working with them to undergo human rights vetting. And no, it, it's not perfect, but also the Leahy Law is not a rubber stamp. Um, so if the State Department or Department of Defense identify a gross human rights violation that the prospective partner force has committed, um, they will say, okay, we, we can't do the program that we were proposing. Um, and there are examples of programs that never got off the ground because they discovered something about the prospective partner. Um, again, absolutely not perfect. Um, again, as Nick has uncovered, there have been so many instances um, I think something around nine instances of partners who uh, presumably would have survived Leahy vetting um, and nevertheless, like, put themselves in the position to, you know, undo a democracy um, or or otherwise overthrow their government. Um, but 127 Echo, where we are creating surrogate forces that we're putting on a U.S. payroll, we're still training and equipping those foreign partners, um, be they militaries. Uh, paramilitaries or private individuals, uh, that is actually exempted through a really tortured legal interpretation, um, exempted from Leahy vetting by the Department of Defense. Um, and Congress has all but explicitly said, you must subject um, these, these 127 ECHO partners to Leahy vetting. Um, and nevertheless, the Department of Defense hews to its, uh, you know, very tortured interpretation of the law to say, no, we do not have to subject them to that human rights vetting regime. We don't have to consult with the Department of State before we can work with these partners. Um, and so there, you know, if our 127 ECHO partners have, our, our surrogate forces have committed, you know, really heinous human rights violations in the past, it doesn't matter uh, for the Department of Defense's ability to partner with them, provide them with money, provide them with weapons. Um, and so that's one of the things that makes that authority so concerning. Um, you know, there, there of course, are all of the war powers concerns. Um, but then on the policy, you also have that risk that we're going to be working with really bad partners um, who are going to cause civilian harm, who are going to undermine U.S. credibility. And so it's like shooting yourself in the foot um, and you know, maybe shooting others. 
Um, and, and yeah, so those, those risks are absolutely present um, for all security cooperation activities, but especially amplified for the 127 Echo activities. So, I, first of all, I just want to tell everybody, you got to make, I want you to all go and check out Catherine's study, Secret War, how the U.S. uses partnerships and proxy forces to wage war under the radar. Because we've been speaking with her for 50 minutes, I think now, and that we won't, I'm not kidding you, we've only skimmed the surface. The history of uh, how we got to these secret wars, this idea that we have, uh, you know, in 2001, a lot of people were saying you can't go to war against an idea when it comes to the war on terror, when the war on terror spawned these secret wars. But if you go back in the history, the Cold War, again, another war on an idea, there were secret wars going on back then, too. That historical context, we didn't get that much into uh, today, and you should be checking out her article for that reason as well. And uh, the idea that, you know, any country that withholds from the public where its military is fighting, the idea that that country can be a democracy can certainly be debated. But one last question for you, Catherine. We've been speaking with Catherine Jan Ebright, who is the author, again, of Secret War, How the U.S. Uses Partnerships and Proxy Forces to Wage War Under the Radar. And the other thing is that this, it's almost it's almost like there's been a military coup over U.S. foreign policy. You write more dangerous still. The executive branch has set its sights on great power competition, preparing for potential confrontations with nuclear states. How can secret wars contribute to the likelihood of a nuclear confrontation? Yeah, so we've been speaking a lot about the counterterrorism context, and I told you that there was this 127 Echo Authority for creating surrogate or proxy forces uh, to give the Department of Defense the ability to take on uh, those various uh, terrorist groups who uh, may or may not have been approved by Congress. Um, the Department of Defense thought that its surrogate forces for counterterrorism were so effective um, that it then asked Congress to give it a separate authority, the 1202 authority, uh, which was enacted as a provisional authority through the 2018 National Defense Authorization Act for creating surrogate forces for quote unquote irregular warfare. My sense is the vast majority of lawmakers do not know that this exists. Each NDAA on an annual basis must pass piece of legislation, um, is, you know, a thousand plus pages long. Um, the text of the 1202 authority is pretty obscure um, and circuitous. You wouldn't really be able to figure out what exactly it was being used for if you were just to read it, um, especially not if you're reading it along with a thousand plus other pages. Um, and, and so, you know, our 127 Echo surrogates have engaged in combat with groups like Boko Haram, um, you know, various Islamic state affiliates across Africa. Um, Al-Shabaab. And that's all been very, very hard uh, for journalists to uncover. Most members of Congress don't really understand how 127 Echo has been used or facilitated combat. Um, you then give the Department of Defense an even broader, quote-unquote, irregular warfare authority of 1202. Um, and DOD is looking at this and saying, huh, I can use this now for great power competition. Right. What's the risk that we end up with a very, very broad interpretation of the president's use of force authority um, in combination with 1202? So creating these surrogates 
um, for, you know, confrontation in the South China Sea uh, or for supporting ongoing Ukrainian war efforts um, in the Donbass. Um, and we actually know, Wes Morgan you know, reported on this, um, that there were 1202 programs, non-kinetic in nature, so intelligence gathering, um, also information operations. Um, there, there were 1202 programs that were going on in Ukraine, in the Donbass, um, before Russia's sort of renewed invasion of Ukraine last February. Um, and at that point, you know, there was a lot of caution um, last February about how we were going to assist the Ukrainian war efforts. Members of Congress were adamant that we should not become a co-belligerent in that conflict um, because, of course, you know, Russia is a nuclear state, um, very, very serious circumstance um, that required a serious and thoughtful approach by the U.S. government. Um, and so at that time, the Department of Defense shuttered its 1202 programs in Ukraine. Um, but as we've seen, the Ukrainians put up a really valiant fight um, to repel the Russian invasion. Uh, the Department of Defense has gotten a little bit bolder in terms of the support that it's willing to provide. Um, and so now it's actively lobbying Congress to expand the 1202 authority to make it crystal clear uh, that 1202 programs can happen in Ukraine today. Well, not not literally today, but like during during this ongoing conflict. Um, and so, you know, do we want the U.S. government to be running surrogate forces in an ongoing major conflict between two countries, one of which is a, a nuclear power? Um, do we think that if the Department of Defense is promising Congress, oh no, we're not going to use our 1202 surrogates for combat, um, that it's likely to hold to that promise uh, when we've seen in the 127 ECHO program context, the counterterrorism context, that it's extremely hard for Congress and the public to actually oversee how those authorities are being used and the 127 ECHO uh, authority, which is the mirror image of the 1202 authority, except for counterterrorism, has led to combat all over Africa and Asia. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that um, I, I would expand the 1202 authority if, if I were Congress. Um, I think that that's a very dangerous proposition. I think that the risk of unauthorized hostilities and then escalation um, is very high. Um, and yeah, I would implore you all to call your legislators um, and say, don't don't support expanding the 1202 authority. Um, in fact, maybe support shrinking it um, or letting it lapse uh, because it currently does not have adequate safeguards or disclosure regimes um, to ensure that we're not going to have the military using 1202 surrogates to engage in combat against a major power and then escalating us to a major conflict. Well, on that happy note, Catherine, <laughs> it's been a pleasure having you on the show. This is an amazing study, and I hope that everybody goes and checks out your article or your study again at the Brennan Center, Secret War, How the U.S. Uses Partnerships and Proxy Forces to Wage War Under the Radar. Thank you so much for being on our show. I truly appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Take care. Take care.
so that last question was supposed to be the question from hell. I didn't introduce it as the question from hell because I was so excited about all the other points I wanted to make. <laughs> Sorry about that. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Live from Landstone from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. If what you just heard from Catherine made you realize this really is hell, show your support by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell. And uh, tune in to tomorrow's Patreon podcast, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This week on Patreon, unsurprisingly, after our conversation with Rasha Al-Akidi, who was uh, raised in Saddam's Iraq and then experienced the horror of the illegal war on Iraq, and today's talk with Catherine on America's secret wars, which make up the forever war, I'm talking about, you guessed it, war. But not just war, the war machine within which we are all complicit here in the United States, whether we like it or not. And I'm betting a lot of you are like me and do not like it. Also on Patreon, we are playing our April 5th, 2008 interview with Haifa Zangana, author of City of Widows, an Iraqi woman's account of war and resistance. Unlike Rasha, Haifa was a prisoner of Saddam Hussein's regime. At the time, Haifa was a weekly columnist at the time of the interview uh, at Al-Quds newspaper and a commentator for The Guardian, Red Pepper, and El Aram Weekly. But the only way you can hear all of that is be- by becoming a subscriber to our Patreon pa- uh, podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell and share with us the rest of our listeners' answers. This week's question from hell is, who would you like to see indicted and why? All right. On Facebook, we have Sel S, who says, As Nick A. has taken care of indicting Kissinger, I'm going to indicate Kissinger. <laughs> All right, then. Um, Riley C. says, The sun. Without it, society's problems would vanish. I like that. I like that. Um, plus, the that smug bastard keeps burning my skin. Yeah. All right. Any more? Um, Let's go to Twitter. We have Edison, who says, Dick Cheney, he cut me off in traffic. <laughs> That's enough reason to indict him. <laughs> and on uh, Discord, we have Urodov, who says, God, on one count, count of creation. <laughs> Is that it? I believe so. Uh, so the answers I liked most were uh, Mark A. saying the Hamburglar, Nick A. saying Kissinger, Edison uh, saying Dick Cheney. Uh, John P. saying every per- president since the end of World War II. Andy H. saying Ron DeSantis' mom. <laughs> Dean T. saying Homo sapiens. Lil Drippy DD saying Washington State Cannabis and Liquor Board. Urudov saying God on one count of creation. But obviously the winner is Andy H. saying Ron DeSantis' mom. <laughs> yeah. You know why. So uh, congratulations. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want, Andy, and we'll get it in the mail to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from hell, would you, who would you like to see indicted and why? Uh, everyone who lied us into the war on Iraq. Everyone who signed off on legalizing torture post-9-11. Everyone who is currently keeping the many wars the U.S. is engaged in secret. And everyone who is profiting from war, death, and destruction around the world, and Henry Kissinger. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from Hell Will, who is our only confirmed guest so far for next week. Next week, we'll have Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. 
Malcolm was on our show back in 2020 in an interview we recently featured in our week-long series, This Is Hell, The Lost Pandemic Tapes. When he was on to talk about a book that we're not going to say the title of. Exactly. Because <laughs> you, you don't want to edit it out later on. That was an editing nightmare last week. Yeah, S is F'd Up and BS is the name of his book, <laughs> History Since the End of uh, History. And uh, he'd already been on the show in 2017 when we discussed another of his books, Kids These Days, Human Capital, and Making of Millennials. Thank you so much to Will it Ben for uh, producing a couple of weeks, a couple of days, the uh, shows this week. Thanks for uh, Dan Kugler coming in here and joining us for a couple of days as well. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing the show this week. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth. Ronaldo for this week in Rotten History. And thanks to Sebastian, Richard, Alex, Theron, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I'll talk about the U.S. war machine. We'll play a 2008 interview uh, on with Haifa on her experience with the war on Iraq. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on your that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.